it's not about getting rid of all your stuff or foregoing toilet paper or whatever. Um, it's just really about tuning into whatever your level of crazy is so that you can figure out how to take it down a notch. There are just so many ways we can optimize our time and our lives so we're just not feeling so bound to the details so we can actually live and enjoy. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Dr. Christine Coe, a music and brain scientist turned multimedia creative. A few weekends ago, we had a jam-packed Saturday. First, Huddy had a haircut. Then he had soccer. During the boys' naps, I had to make some appetizers for a little party to celebrate my mother-in-law's birthday. And as soon as the boys woke up, we packed up the car and headed over to a friend's house for dinner. These were all fun things, but it was so stressful. We were late for everything. Hudson and Brooks were super cranky. There were many, many car seat battles. The ride home from dinner was filled with tears and we were all exhausted. It had been so long since we had a packed schedule. I can't believe this would have been a normal Saturday in pre-pandemic life. How did we survive, and why did we insist on doing it all? As we start to emerge from this COVID bubble, I'll be thinking long and hard about what I want our free time to look like going forward. When Dr. Christine Coe wrote her minimalist parenting book eight years ago, little did she know how relevant it would be for all of us today. The pandemic didn't give us a choice. It forced us all to slow down, look inward, and do less. Now, many parents and families are starting to resurface after an incredibly trying and challenging year and are trying to navigate how to find the new normal. Dr. Ko's advice is more relevant now than ever. Optimize your time and your life so you're not feeling so bound to the details and so you can actually live and enjoy the time with your family. Find your level of chaos and crazy and just take it down a notch. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. We're excited to hear your story and share it with everyone. Yes, this is so exciting. I would love to hear about your career journey because you made quite a pivot. You started in academia and then you left. <laughs> what, how did you make that decision and what did you transition to? Yes. Well, um, thank you for having me on for this conversation. I, it's funny when I career pivoted all those years ago, I felt so alone. And over the years I've met so many moms who have just changed how they're doing things. And so I'm one of them. I used to be an academic. I was in, in music and brain science and, um, I studied learning strategies and my postdoc was in neurology and music. My final academic stop was a triple appointment postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical, Mass General, and MIT. And it was really an unhappy scenario. It was just, um, you know, I loved, I loved science. I was 
good at science. I was good at the work, but I wasn't filled with the passion for it that you need to have in order to be a junior faculty, especially in the Boston area. And then notably, you know, something that I think happens for lots of moms is that I was pregnant with my first child. My dad was very sick and it just made me question a lot of things. And I thought, I love working. I'm always somebody who has loved working. And if I'm going to spend all this time away from family, I need to really just love with a burning passion what I'm doing. And academia wasn't it. So I decided to leave for the internet, (laughs) which sounds crazy. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking about as you're sharing this too, how from an outside perspective, right? You are checking every box. You are just moving up, up and up. How did that feel to have this pull in one direction, but then also know that you were really excelling and and at the top of where you needed to be. Yeah, I think it really helps. And a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, but I think it's very important to share that I was a terrible student in middle and high school. Solid Bs, some Ds. I only excelled in music, (laughs) the place where I found passion. I just Um, I later learned that part of this was due to a lot of stress that I was under as a kid in my household, and it made it very difficult for me to learn. And I think I just wasn't wired for traditional school. It wasn't until I went to college that I started to really find my curiosity in academics. So the reason I say that is because I'm a Korean woman and, you know, my parents were very driven and wanted us to do well. I mean, they were immigrants and, So there was a lot of pressure to do exactly the thing that I had achieved, but that felt just so far out of reach for all of my middle Mm -hmm. and high school. I just couldn't be what they wanted me to be. Eventually that became my path. But I think the reason that I was able to let go so easy when I easily, when I decided to step away is I thought, okay, I got here and these are just people. And yes, they're very smart people, but they're just people. And there are many things that people can do. And so it was an interesting, unexpected full circle where hmm. I kind of came to terms with the fact that, yes, I was actually smart enough to do the work and that made it easier to leave. Very odd, unexpected. <laughs> I can see how those things would work together though. Like you you reached what you had set out to do and you had proven um, that you were able to do it. So now with that almost in your rear view mirror, you could then think about what was next. So mm-hmm. what, what was next? How did you approach that decision-making path? Yeah, well, I had started in 2006, just a bit before my postdoc was coming to an end. It was a three-year grant. And I had started a blog. I didn't even know what a blog was. This was um, 2006. So it was really that sort of Mm -hmm. second initial wave of people starting to blog and share their stories on the internet. I wasn't a personal blogger. I was actually, the blog still exists. It's called bostonmamas.com. And my goal with it was just that, or the way it came about was that a lot of people asked me when I was pregnant, like what I was doing for gear and all these other things, because they knew I obsessively researched things because that was just my nature. And I just had a funny moment where at one point I said, I wish there were some easy way I could share this information, maybe on the internet. (laughs) And a tech friend of mine said, yeah, you need a blog. And I didn't even know what that was. He helped me set it up and I started it. And then all of a sudden people started reading it. Um, I think I was filling, you know, my, through all the work that I've done in the last 15 years since leaving academia, I've always been focused on 
kind of filling a hole, identifying a hole, something that's missing and then filling it, you know, filling the thing that I would want to see. So I think I did that for the Boston area and it kind of grew nationally as well. And while it wasn't making a ton of money when I decided to jump off and leave, I think I, it gave me the confidence to feel like, okay, I could probably make something of this. And um, also my postdoc was sort of complicated and difficult with my advisor and it was time to part ways anyway. So um, I just felt a little more steady about just jumping and saying, okay, let's time to be brave and let's figure out what the next thing is. And I love how you were talking about how your, this was your first child and how were you pregnant at the time or were you, had you just, Oh my gosh. Yes. I was pregnant during my postdoc, not an easy situation to be in, um, such a male dominated (laughs) environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, and when I had the baby Laurel, my she's gosh, she's now 16, but it was not a super, working mom friendly environment. I mean, Mm. I had to fight the, I was on an NIH grant. I believe it allowed for 30 days of leave. (laughs) So I had to uh, fight for a lot more. I think I got 33 months by the end of it. And then even when I came back, when I needed to do things like pump, I would either need to walk 20 minutes to a mother's room across campus, or I would squat in the bathroom, you know, next to the toilet, close Mm -hmm. to the outlet. So it was not the greatest. I mean, that wasn't all of why I left, but certainly uh, kids change you, as we all know. So that was a really big part of my decision-making. And is it at that time that you also started the blog when you were pregnant or was it after Laurel? Yeah, it was just after. So I think it was July, uh, actually it was July, 2006. So I had started it and she, she was born in 2004. So it was, it was a bit after, and I had started to collect resources and things. And that's mm-hmm. when I pull, pulled it all together. And it was like so many things, you know, moms do things at weird times and we're up at weird times, right? Especially mm-hmm. with newborns. So <laughs> I was literally, and she was, in, you know, eyes wide open in the middle of the night type of baby. So I'd literally be nursing her. And she was what my pediatrician called a gourmand nurser, meaning she'd get on and be on for hours. So I would just- I've never heard that term, <laughs> but I- Love it. I feel like there's some Instagram post in there of like the different types of nurses oh, totally. and like, well, like the sleepy, my, my first was a sleepy nurse. Like uh-huh. I would like be stripping his clothes off and tickling his toes. And, and he'd be out. He'd and be he'd out. be like, nope, I'm good. Like, just yeah. Yeah. Whereas my, my second was what he called the pediatrician called the barracuda. Cause she'd be like, I'm 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 okay. Done. <laughs> But anyway, I'd be working on the blog in the middle of the night, you know, while I was nursing her. And this is just, I guess, how we do get things done as as women. But I I think it also, I just felt such a passion for it that I was like, okay, I'm up. Why don't I work on this? Wow. Incredible. So you, was that what you were doing full time after you left? Or my impression is that you like to be very busy and take kind of a on serial starter. <laughs> many different things from learning a little bit about your background. Yeah, I I will say um so I had the privilege of space and um my husband by the time I was getting ready to leave my postdoc it was clear to him too that for my health and mental wellness like I needed to leave so mm-hmm. Fortunately, he was in at a job where he could support us while I got my freelance career off the ground. So we had like a um, a bit of time where he was shouldering things. And then, you know, it's important to mention that 
I had to kind of make that decision to make space, even though it's terrifying for somebody who's always had a job to then not have a real job. Uh, it was terrifying to do that. But as soon as I did that, then other stuff started coming in. So I got my first freelance editing contract. And then I had the space to start a graphic design business, which is no longer open, but I, I started that. And then over the years, I've just always, as I mentioned, I've thought about where there are holes and mm -hmm. niches that I want to fit or fill. And then I've migrated in that direction. So over the years, I've started a couple of podcasts, both still running. Um, Edit Your Life is with my co-host, Asha Dornfest, and then Hello Relationships is with my therapist husband, husband which is very interesting. I wrote a book, uh, co-authored a book called Minimalist Parenting, uh, started an apparel company with my husband uh, after the 2016 election. It's advocacy-oriented and donates mm -hmm. to charity. And then I, um, perhaps my sort of most official job is I also serve as creative director at a social media for social good agency. So it's a lot of things, but they are all connected by this thread of wanting to help and mm. do better and live better and be a little less crazy. Yeah, I can really see this theme of advocacy in, in different ways through the work that you're doing. Um, why has advocacy work, especially on behalf of moms, become so important to you? You know, it's interesting because it probably wasn't until, I don't know, I, I don't know how many years exactly, but I never in early adulthood would have considered myself an advocate. I was probably like lots of young adults, just very self-focused on how I could survive and move through the world. But just over the years, I have realized, you know, in reflecting on my own experience and the hard things mm -hmm. that I've experienced and talking to friends. And actually, the more I talked to blog readers and podcast listeners, the more I realized how much people need one another. So mm -hmm. I think whether it is advocating for moms, whether it is advocating to get out the vote, whether it is being pro-science, all of these things I feel like are connected to a sort of us elevating as a community together. You know, we're not, none of us can exist in a silo. We, we would never survive. So I think that's why it's just become so important. And especially, you know, if we think about kids and I'm always telling my kids and trying to show them how important it is to be connected and to be a mm -hmm. good friend and all those simple things that we want to teach our kids to do, you know, we need to show up and do that. And it looks a little different on an adult scale. We were just reading, my son and I, my older son and I this morning, a book called Be Kind. And it really made me reflect as well and think about how do you teach this big concept of kindness to your children and have them internalize it and embody it and, and bring it forward um, mm -hmm. each day. Yeah. Well, I think, and you're hitting the nail on the head with one of the simplest and easiest ways is books. Like books, they're just the best. And I think when it can feel overwhelming, these huge things, especially when the world is a total dumpster fire and we feel hopeless, you know, I think it really is important to remember that it's these small actions that are what that are going to propel us forward and help us get better. And the more we can help our kids connect with other humans and just realize how many similarities we also all have, the mm -hmm. better for sure. 
Yeah, really thinking, I think, too, of those like big topics. And there have been so many um, in recent Mm -hmm. years to talk to our children about. I know you were on All Things Considered recently talking about how to talk to children about anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think so many parents feel at a loss um, about how to talk about these recent you know, tragic incidents of racism. What advice do you have for parents on how to address this topic? I think these topics are understandably so complicated and a little scary to address if it feels out of your comfort zone or you're not sure. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing, you know, which we've touched on a little bit is to teach kids about empathy and to help them really understand that um, one a site that I just love for resources for this is called Making Caring Common. It's out of Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, but it's all about like super simple exercises to just help kids see themselves, um, see the differences and the similarities and, you know, remember that we're all humans and that we all matter. Um, So I think, you know, rolling it back to one of those simple principles Mm -hmm. is really huge. And then obviously we were talking about books just a minute ago that representation in media is huge, not just on a celebratory month or day, but Mm -hmm. all year round. I think that's like my big wish for education is that centering diverse voices happens all the time, not just at particular times of the year. So, and, and just start, I think my biggest sort of broad advice would be it's okay to make mistakes in these conversations. It's okay to not have all the perfect words. And it's, I would say this applies to everything from sex ed to conversations about race to anything. Like you don't have to have the perfect words. You just have to start the conversation and be willing Mm -hmm. to have those little touch points, you know, every, every now and then. Well, and it's interesting too. There are so many things that um, I keep circling back to my son, but he's three and a half. So we, we have lots of conversations and there are so many topics that he asked me a question about, and I don't know the answer, right? Like that could be everything from the other day. He was asking me about supersonic jets and some, something <laughs> about them. And I was like, I know nothing. Like we're going to have to look this up and research this. And like, basically I'll get back to you and we'll keep the conversation going. But it struck strikes me too, as I'm hearing you talk, there's no reason why you couldn't say that around a big topic like racism um, as well. Like you could easily start that conversation and, and sort of be honest and say, I actually don't know. Cause I, part of my fear has been getting a question that I don't know the answer to. Right. Oh, well, I am here to tell you, and I've learned this from a number of sex ed professionals too, that that is actually a great gift that you can give your kid because Um, you know, so responding, if you don't know the answer saying, Hey, let's look it up together because that is showing them that you're a curious person. And over time they will continue to realize that, Hey, you know, Oh yeah. Um, I can just keep, keep on learning all the time. So that's actually, it's actually really great to admit that you don't know. I know we're sort of programmed as parents to have all the answers and we should know everything all the time, which is absolutely not true. There's so much, I don't know. No, don't get me started on math. (laughs) (laughs) That is definitely my kryptonite, but I'm working on it. I'm trying to learn. (laughs) 
Right. It's an evolution. You're, yes. you're always learning. You're always yeah. learning. Well, you have so many different topics that you have, you know, covered um, in the in the course of your career. I want to circle back to the book that you mentioned. Mm. Um, and how did you get inspired to create a book about minimalist parenting? And can you tell us a little bit more about what what does that mean? Yes. Well, so minimalist parenting, it's hard to believe. I believe the release date year was 2013. So it's it's crazy how it is that far back and yet is still in the public conversation. Mm. Clearly, parents want to be doing less and want to be less overwhelmed. And the idea for it really came to me through my readers. And at that time, anytime I, I've always felt, you know, I grew up with very little. And so now being in a place of relative, relative, I'm underscoring abundance. I've always been struck by this feeling of that sort of tension between what I had as a kid and what I can offer my kids now. And that's really, that's really hard. And I know a lot of parents who struggle with that. So anytime I posted on my blog about trying to do things a different way, not getting sucked into the overscheduling chaos, all manner of things, just trying to do less and be less crazy. I would, I would get these, I wouldn't get public comments all the time, but I would get a lot of emails from people saying, Oh, can, can we do it that way? I want to do it that way too, but I feel sort of scared or self-conscious or whatever. And I realized there should be a whole public dialogue about this because clearly I'm not the only person feeling this and there are a lot more, I'm sure. The book is really, I just want to underscore for parents who are listening that it's not about getting rid of all your stuff or foregoing toilet paper or whatever. Um, It's just really about tuning into whatever your level of crazy is so that you can figure out how to take it down a notch. So it's a very, there are lots of practical tips, but ultimately it's got to be customized to you and what works for your family and what your priorities are and what you care about and what you want to let go of. How do you try to live that vision that you were just describing? I think one of the biggest things, and quite frankly, the pandemic has been the most fascinating (laughs) reset on all of this because even though we are a pretty unscheduled family, generally speaking, my kids will only do one sport. You know, we're not a super overbooked family that way, but the the calendar in general and the list of things to do and details to push around is tends to be my nemesis because I'm a person who's good at getting things done. Some, sometimes there can be creep. So I think it requires kind of gentle, consistent editing. For example, before times, before the pandemic, I would do these regular calendar edits where I would look at the week and try to figure out, actually in the book, I talk about identifying your Goldilocks level of busy. So looking at the calendar and collecting a little data, here's my science background coming in, but look at the weeks that felt totally bananas. How many commitments did you have that week? Look at the weeks that felt boring and look at the weeks that felt just right. And then once you figure out what your target is, and I have to really emphasize that that's going to be different for different families because some families love being packed to the max. It's just Mm -hmm. different for everybody. Mm -hmm. But once you identify what that Goldilocks level is, then you can start thinking, okay, I'm looking forward to my calendar. Wow. This week is way off that target. It's going to be crazy. Where can I, what can I take out? What can I edit out? So, and that's actually why I started the edit your life podcast, because I felt like I wanted to continue the conversation 
from parenting and expanded into all manner of lifestyle things, whether it's, you know, decluttering or Mm. food or whatever else. So there are just so many ways we can optimize our time and our lives. So we're just not feeling so bound to the details so we can actually live and enjoy. Well, and I loved your piece um, about like what, what, what do we want to keep from the pandemic pace and, you know, how do we gradually add back in essentially the things that, that we want? Um, Can you tell a little bit more, share a little bit more around how you think parents can preserve this slower pace that we've all been forced to really adjust to in the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. And I know this has been just an extraordinarily difficult time for people. So I never want to sort of jump out with silver lining advice and not recognize that because it has been so difficult. Uh, And the Washington Post piece that you referenced was really great, I think, in that there were a lot of concrete steps in there. And one of the first ones I would recommend to people straight off the bat is to just, whether it's a notebook, Google Doc, phone memo, however you take notes on things, write down right now while we're still largely in the thick of this, what are the good things that have happened um, from the past year? And what are the things that you are just, were just like a source of misery? Because I think time has a very sneaky way of eroding our memories really quickly. And actually there was this little bit in the piece that I referenced, but I actually have a recurring uh, note on my calendar that says it's in August and it says, do not schedule extra crap for September because I have found in past, well, I had one year where I had a complete total meltdown because just everything stacked up and kind of snuck up on me. And mm-hmm. so I knew I was going to forget about that unless I put a note on my calendar for the following year. And so every time I come up to that recurring reminder, I kind of laugh because I'm like, oh yeah, that was a bad summer. Okay. Let's not do that again. So I really, it'll only take you five minutes to jot down a few things, but that way you'll have a benchmark to say, this is what life was like at this time. And this is what I loved about it. And this is what I care about protecting. And I'm going to do what I can to do that. I think we, we, there's some power in writing things down. Hmm. I love that idea. I keep saying how time in the pandemic, I also had a baby in the, in the pandemic at the start of the pandemic. So that that puts things on warp, uh, warp speed, but also slow speed. I feel like the last year has just been the fastest and slowest year of my Mm -hmm. life in many different ways. And I think your advice to carve out the time and space to really think back and, and think about it, um, is really wise. Yeah. And it sounds like you could do this with your son, but what I wanted to also suggest to tack on is to ask your kids the same question because kids are so fascinating and they have a completely, Mm -hmm. their answers might surprise you and also be kind of awesome and unexpected. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just thought of that and I'm going to ask my kids later (laughs) because I want to know too. I would like to hear from them and just jot it down so I can remember what mattered to them and what did they love from this period of time or take away um, and what did they really struggle with? So we can try to give that some attention moving forward. Um, Well, I'm going to turn to you for more advice. Uh, How you juggle so many things. (laughs) Um, How how do you juggle it all? How do you make the juggle work? Um, okay. Well, I would say the the level of juggle that I do is 
possibly not for everyone. It's probably not for everyone. Um, I like it because I love having a lot of different creative irons in the fire. I love creating content. Like I'm just so passionate about it. I'm on deadline for like three different articles right now. And I'm, I'm actually good with it because I'm like, oh, these are going to be so fun to write. Sort of from a tactical perspective, I also struggle a little bit with memory and remembering things. Um, and if I don't write it down, I'm really sunk. So one thing that I do is I use a to-do app. It's called todoist.com. There's a free version, but I use the pay version. And one thing that helps me is I break everything I need to do down in very granular terms. Um, and in the comments, I link to the docs I need. So it's super efficient. Like when I need to work on something, I just click and I go. So that's kind of how I organize my time. I think also hiring people is really important. So I have a lot of things. I used to be a person when I started freelance, I was like, I have to learn how to do everything by myself. And I'm over that. So <laughs> for example, you know, I have a great podcast editor who's, that's his specialty. That's all he does for me. I have somebody who's really good at technical details. So they copy edit stuff and they do research and somebody who's more creative and does writing. And so um, it it's, I think it's really important. It can be really scary to outsource your stuff and hand over your keys to the mm -hmm. castle. And I once read in some entrepreneur magazine, this was years ago, um, saying that if you are the creative force behind something, you can't be doing all the like little tactical things that you could hire, easily hire somebody to do. And I really took that to heart because it took a lot of letting go of my control freak nature to say, okay, I'm not going to understand how to edit a podcast and I'm just going to be okay with that and let the professional do his thing. Um, and now it's just a delight that I can just send it off and <laughs> there it goes and not think about it. <laughs> so team is really important is what I'm saying. Oh, I love that idea. Um, I know this is going back a little bit in time now, but what advice would you give to your pre-mom self? Oh my gosh. Um, I think to my pre-mom self, I know it sounds a little basic maybe, but I would tell myself that everything is going to be okay and that kids are resilient. They don't need nearly as much attention <laughs> as you're probably going to give them are, are sort of funny. This is the extreme, extreme example of this, but with my first child, it was a C emergency C-section unexpected. Mm -hmm. And so we were in the hospital for five days in Massachusetts. You get five days for a regular delivery. I think it's two or three days. And by day five, I realized that I had not put her down for the entire five days, I had either walked to the bathroom with her, holding her, I had slept with her on me, literally had not put her down. And uh, it was kind of a telling, telling moment for me to realize, okay, I have to let go a little. She's, mm -hmm. she's going to be okay. And, um, and we've had plenty of stumbling blocks and learning moments where I've realized how important it is to kind of let her explore, let her make some mistakes and that everything is going to be fine, you know, with assuming the loving support that she, she has, you know, if you're in a, in a situation like that and, and that has worked, it, it is nice. I will say to have a second, have a, a second go at it. <laughs> as I'm sure you will. Find. Yes. Everything's a little more relaxed the next time around. <laughs> I feel like there are so many moments that go by throughout the day. So my younger son, Brooks, he's, um, 
you know, he's at that stage where he's standing, he's not walking yet, but he's like working it out. And I forgot how nerve wracking this whole stage yes. is. But at the same time, I feel like where with Hudson, I was, you know, chasing You're like him right around everywhere. Him. Yes. Yeah. Like I, my hands were just there constantly. Like if he, and now <laughs> I'm like, oh, you fell down Brooks and you're fine. And yeah. you Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly mastered it. The like butt fall and you're cushioned and you're right back up. And oh, look at that. You can do it while you're making dinner. I don't know, doing 500 other things. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely uh, a, a learning curve to let go. Um, it's and- hard. It's hard. We want to do do the best and do right by our kids. And we want to protect them from everything and just love on them. And it, it it's a lot though. Like we have to remember, especially as moms who have been, I will say women, especially just completely devastated emotionally and mental health wise through this pandemic, mm-hmm. we have to take care of ourselves. Like there's no choice. We have to. So yes. it's really important. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. And thank you for spending some time with me today. It has been a joy getting to listen to your story and to learn from you. Thank you for all of the work you do um, for advocating for moms as well. Oh, thanks for having me, Bridget. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that I co-founded in 2018 to help parents find daycare. As a first-time parent, finding childcare can feel scary and intimidating. At Neighbor Schools, we help you find daycare you'll feel really good about so you can go back to work with the peace of mind that your little one is getting the socialization, support, and stimulation they need to learn and grow. We've helped thousands of moms and dads figure out the daycare search. Check us out at neighborschools.com And when you get in touch, mention that you discovered us on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. We'll see you next time.